trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You may have heard some rumors floating around that this is a place where wrong thinkers gather. Well, I'm here to confirm those rumors are absolutely true. And I want to welcome you to our ranks. You see, being a wrong thinker, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes, you know, you wrong thinker, stated like it's a bad thing. Actually, it's a badge of honor because uh, being a wrong thinker in our time indicates that you're a person who's actually considering what uh, you are consuming, the information that you're taking in, to better help you understand the world around you. And sadly, in our time, that means we have to be willing to question a lot of the uh, narrative managers out there who are telling us, this is what you're allowed to think. This is uh, the, the allowable range of opinions which you may hold. You know, it's not a matter of being contrarian or just, you know, trying to assert yourself. It's, it's a matter of standing up for your own attachment to reality. And that's what I try to do on a daily basis here on this program with the help of some wonderful sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, also Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's see if we can gain a firmer grasp of reality. And I actually want to spend some time this hour talking a little bit about the danger of being misled by misinformation. I mean, it's it's one thing to just, gee, well, I always thought uh, the moon was made of cheese, but huh, imagine my surprise when I was uh, visiting some traveling exhibit and I saw moon rocks and realized, hey, that's not cheese. No, it's not a simple misunderstanding. It's more like it's more like being gaslit. And if you're not familiar with the term gaslighting, uh, there's there's an old movie, Gaslight, that uh, essentially the plot is a husband is trying to drive his wife crazy, like literally out of her mind. And so he'll adjust the level of the lights and then tell her, honey, you just imagined that. That's not what happened. In fact, to illustrate it, there's a, <laughs> there's a, a great, i got to see if I can find this real quick. It's, it's a great uh, joke. Did you hear the joke about the gas lighter? Yes, you did. You just don't remember it. I'll hold for the for the laughter and applause, but that's that's the gist of it. Don't trust your eyes. Trust me. And right now, there are a number of very dedicated data and information disseminating sources out there whose full-time job is to make sure that you don't really know what to believe. And unfortunately, the people who are doing most of the misleading are the very same people who claim that they're working overtime to protect us from misinformation. So all the fact checkers out there and all the people who are looking over our shoulders, you know, algorithmically trying to keep us from seeing information that could be misinformation. Yeah, they're they're part of their job is to keep us from getting too close to the truth. Case in point, Glenn Greenwald, one of the very few journalists out there who deserves the title journalist, has a, a wonderful post on his Substack, the real disinformation agents. And it's actually about an hour long special it's a video that they've put together but you can watch for yourself as nbc news tells four blatant lies in a two-minute clip 
And the point in sharing this is that the same corporate outlets that most vocally process, profess concern over disinformation are actually the ones who are spreading it most casually. And Glenn Greenwald breaks this down. NBC's report on Julian Assange is a perfect case study. He says the war on disinformation is now one of the highest priorities of the political and media establishment. In fact, he says it's become the foundational justification for imposing a regime of online censorship. All around the world, new laws are being enacted in its name to empower the state to regulate discourse. And exploiting this cause, a small handful of billionaires are working in unison with Western security state agencies under the guise of neutral-sounding names like the Atlantic Council to set the lines of permissible thought and to decree what is true and false. He says corporate media outlets are attempting to rehabilitate their shattered image by depicting themselves as the bulwark against the rising tide of disinformation. Now, Glenn Greenwald calls it out for what it is. He says it's an understatement to say that this righteous cause is a scam, that its motive is power and control over speech and thought to eliminate dissent and discredit competition rather than some noble quest for truth. He says, that's, it's just, this is too self-evident to require explanation. No human institutions should be trusted with the inherently tyrannical power they seek to arrogate unto themselves to decree truth and falsity with such authoritative power that views they've decreed false become prohibited, off-limits, even worthy of punishment. Now, he gives a great little historical perspective on this with uh, by saying that a foundational view of the Enlightenment was that truth and falsity are best discovered by humans engaging in free inquiry and appealing to reason and persuasion rather than being captive to the whimsical decrees of centralized authority dictating to citizens what they are and are not permitted to believe. And he says, that's why I believe, as I wrote at length in a 2013 Guardian article, that at the heart of every censor lies hubris, the belief that they are so evolved, so enlightened and superior that they've risen above the eternal human propensity to err, enabling them to ascertain universal truth whose validity is so unassailable nobody should be permitted to question it, let alone dissent from it. Now, i got to pause for just a second here to ask you to think about all the efforts to keep the vaccine deniers, among other people, you know, in check. That's just one example, but... It's a really prominent one and something that you can very easily verify for yourself. Just, you know, jump online. Read the terms and conditions that Google and YouTube and other major social media platforms and and, uh, big tech platforms have, have recently updated. Glenn Greenwald says, All that said, there is a core truth, an unintentional one, that lies at the crux of this elite war on disinformation. It's absolutely true that U.S. political discourse is drowning in deliberate disinformation campaigns and lies. And Glenn Greenwald says it's also true that this disinformation epidemic is a serious menace, a toxic plague on our democracy and our society. That part they have right. But he says the part that they have, where they've gone wrong, and very, very wrong at that, is how they have identified the most harmful sources of this disinformation because it doesn't emanate primarily from Trump boomers on Facebook or dark web QAnon groups or mischievous transgressive teenagers on 4chan. Ordinary citizens are obviously as capable of, as anyone of believing and spreading false assertions. 
but the far more damaging, destructive, organized, and coordinated disinformation campaigns come from major corporate media outlets themselves and their security state partners, particularly the corporate media outlets that uh, that most vocally and flamboyantly claim to be so profoundly concerned about disinformation that they want to censor the Internet in the name of stopping it. They are the ones who spent the last five years flooding the country with a demented CIA-constructed conspiracy about a Kremlin takeover of the U.S., using clandestine sexual blackmail over the president and hallucinating Russian agents hiding under every bed. So many fabrications were disseminated under the rubric of that fairy tale that he says it's genuinely hard to choose the worst. Arguably the most pernicious and prolific disseminator of organized disinformation, or at least the disinformation campaigns, is NBC News, which includes its cable unit, MSNBC. Greenwald says we've spent the last several months working on a mini-documentary demonstrating on how many of the coordinated lies from the U.S. security state were spread by a tiny handful of pundits, three of whom, Rachel Maddow, all but official CIA spokesman Ken Delanian, and former Bush-Cheney spokesperson Nicole Wallace, work for NBC News. And he says that report will be published shortly. But he says this week, we produced a rumble video dissecting one specific two-minute segment that NBC aired in order to demonstrate how casually, aggressively, and constantly NBC's highest-paid personalities lie to the public. And as he says in the video, he says, I use the term lie here, not in the way that it's been used by the liberal CNN, NBC, Atlantic, NYT, corporate media axis over the last five years. One, anything Donald Trump and his supporters say. And two, anything that contravenes liberal orthodoxies. Glenn Greenwald says, no, in this report, I use the term lie in its most literal, restrictive, and classic sense. Namely, the assertion of demonstrably false factual claims with either the knowledge that it's false or complete indifference to its truth or falsity. I've got to take a break here, but I hope you'll stick around and be back on the other side of this break to hear where Glenn Greenwald goes with it. I've got a link to the article in the show notes. I hope you'll check that out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Wouldn't you want to know if you were being lied to or being misled? It's not like somebody's trying to, you know, punish you or make you feel bad. You dummy. Why did you believe this? It's more like, can you trust what they're telling you? We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I dive back into this Glenn Greenwald story, I'm just going to throw a quick reminder out there for you that for a limited time, as in like one more week, you can take advantage of a remarkable food storage special by my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. Now, maybe you've thought a little bit more about food storage as you've watched food prices going higher and thought, you know, maybe it'd be good to have some set aside for a rainy day. Well, with a 25-year shelf life, hey, that's a pretty good start right there. You buy the food at today's prices, knowing that, yes, prices are likely to continue to go higher, but eventually you're going to eat that food. So it's this is, this is actually one of the better investments people can make, not because, oh, it's going to make me tons of money, but because there may come a time I need it. 
and nothing else is going to take its place. Well, the deal is this. Through Christmas Eve, my listeners can enjoy a 30% discount. 30%. No sales tax and free shipping. That's an amazing deal. And it's only for my listeners and only from lifesavingfood.com. All you have to do is use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout to claim that deal. You got one week to go, better jump on it. They make great gifts too, by the way. Trust me, people will be glad to know that they are just a little more self-reliant as a result of what you gave them. All right, back to this uh, article by Glenn Greenwald, The Real Disinformation Agents. He says, on December 10th, MSNBC aired a morning or a segment rather on Morning Joe, a purported news report featuring its host, Joe Scarborough, former GOP congressman from Florida, and its regular paid contributor, Claire McCaskill, former two-term Democratic senator from Missouri, that packed one lie after the next into two short minutes. Now, the pair was purporting to explain to its audience the implications of last week's ruling by a British court approving the Biden Department of Justice's request to extradite Julian Assange to the U.S. to stand trial on espionage charges in connection with the 2010 publication by WikiLeaks in partnership with numerous mainstream media outlets, a cache of secret documents revealing various war crimes, lies, and corruptions on the part of the U.S. and U.K. governments and their allies. Within the span of two minutes... He says these NBC personalities told four blatant lies about the Assange case. And he says, I don't mean that they asserted dubious opinions or questionable narratives or even misleading claims. Greenwald says, I mean they outright lied about four separate matters that are crucial to understanding the Biden administration's attempted extradition and prosecution of Assange. Now, these lies were not just misleading, but pernicious, as they were designed not to merely mislead the public, but to provoke them to believe that one of the gravest attacks on press freedom in years, the imprisonment of a journalist for the crime of reporting true and accurate information about the crimes of power centers, is something viewers should applaud rather than denounce. And he says, we took the time to dissect this segment and amass the dispositive proof of their multiple lies, not because we think Scarborough and McCaskill will pay any price or will have to retract any of this. Of course they will not. They are doing their job, which is to lie in a way that flatters the ideological preconceptions of NBC viewers who hate Assange due to the role his reporting played in harming the Democratic Party during the 2016 election, which Hillary Clinton herself claims was one of the two primary reasons she lost. Greenwald says, we did this video report in order to illustrate how easily and reflexively these corporate outlets lie. To demonstrate that the public's view that these outlets are completely untrustworthy and contemptible is valid and correct. And to set the record straight about the Assange case. Greenwald says, we realize that not all subscribers here want to watch a one-hour video. And for that reason, he says, as we do with all of the video reports we produce, we will shortly produce a written transcript of the program for our Substack subscribers. But he says, I really hope people will take the time to watch this particular video since the lies came in the form of video. Therefore, he says, we concluded that using video to highlight the severity and intentionality of this lying was the most effective way to demonstrate how noxious it really is. And it's tagged right at the very end of the article. I think you would find it well worth your time 
to to sit and watch this. It's about an hour long video, but you know, I I don't want to sound like I'm too big of a fanboy. I don't want to sound like I'm I'm trying to put uh, um, Glenn Greenwald and those who work with him, you know, up on a pedestal and say they are above reality. I just know from firsthand experience, finding reliable, trustworthy sources of information is tough. You, I mean, you've got your work cut out for you if you want to really find people who have an informed take that aren't trying to to manipulate you into some mental corner. You know, you got to believe this and don't ever question what I'm saying. Glenn Greenwald is one of the best sources of information that I've found simply because he does not burden whatever he's reporting on with judgment. He isn't he isn't a narrative manager. He's a true reporter and he'll put the facts out there and let people draw their own conclusions. And may, I don't know I don't know why but that just that gives me hope. It also makes me a little bit afraid for Glenn because Look, Julian Assange is being treated as a, as a broker for information, an information broker, which is, is kind of a fancy way of alluding to he might be a spy. He's an information broker. He just sells that information to whoever has the highest, you know, bid. So I worry for Glenn Greenwald, because if the U.S. government can go after, prosecute, and either put away for life or potentially execute, I guess, if it's espionage, you know, someone like uh, like Julian Assange, that puts a target on the back of every real journalist out there in the world. Not because they're all doing investigative journalism, not because they're all, you know, highlighting what whistleblowers are saying. But it establishes a precedent that you're not a journalist unless we say you're a journalist. Well, since when did freedom of the press become a government-granted privilege? I know some people might misunderstand and think, well, now, Brian, come on. Uh, you know, First Amendment talks about freedom of the press. Therefore, why it's right there in the Constitution. This is something the government, you know, the, the Constitution grants us that right. So I want to correct that misconception. You know what the most important right is given to us by the Constitution? That's a trick question because the Constitution gives us no rights. What it does is it recognizes pre-existing natural rights. And this is underscored in the Bill of Rights with very strict admonitions to government. These are off-limits. And they include the natural rights of, for instance, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, you know, the ability to uh, petition for redress of grievances, the petition to gather, you know, to, to come together and, and to discuss things, freedom of the press, etc., and all of the other parts of the Bill of Rights, they are restrictions on the federal government itself. They are not permission slips for you and me just waiting for some judge to, you know, divine out this meaning that here's, here's what the Constitution says you can do. In the plainest possible terms, the Constitution is nothing more than a contract between the various states who signed on to it and who became part uh, of the Union that defines the upper limits of government power at the federal level and restricts it to those powers alone. It's not a blank check. It never was. And it's only because we've uh, turned a lot of reality on its head over the last uh, 150 years or so that we have confusion over issues like this. So when someone asks you, what's the most important right that the Constitution gives you, you should be able to confidently confidently tell them no rights 
The Constitution gives me nothing. What it gives government is very explicit instructions on these are the powers you can exercise under these circumstances, and these are the limitations on your power. Period, bucko. I hope you'll take the time to check out Glenn Greenwald's article, and better still, I hope you'll watch this excellent video, Four Lies in the Space of Two Minutes. I don't know what much, how much more would it take to convince you that, hey, maybe, maybe even my favorite flavor of news outlet isn't being, you know, perfectly straight with me. It's good to have a healthy sense of skepticism. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So here's a question for you to ponder. Are states that have greater freedom less safe? Oh, you know... You know that we've, we've heard this argument in various forms. In fact, let's follow it up with a question. Are the people who are flocking to Texas and Florida and Idaho, are they going there so they can feel less safe? See, as one of those individuals who migrated earlier this year, I feel like I might be able to answer that question. And the answer is no. I didn't go to Idaho because if I move there, it'll make me feel less safe. Uh, when I moved to Idaho... I came, uh, well, first of all, I'm just, I'll just be straight up with you. I came because I felt uh, moved upon, like I felt like God was directing me. Now is the time for you to be closer to your family members here and also to, to be, you know, in, in southern Idaho. And I know that may sound mystical and weird to some people, but uh, I've become pretty good over the last 25 years or so at uh, being able to be directed when necessary. You know, if, if it's time to, to go, it's time to go. But one of the things that made it a very easy transition, or at least a very easy decision, to come to Idaho was I started visiting, I guess it was back in January, just going to visit family. And, and the thing I kept noticing everywhere I went was a sense that life was actually pretty normal. This doesn't mean that there were no people, you know, suffering and dying from COVID. It's, it, and, you know, it, can, it still continues. I still know of people who are dealing with it, but generally... The public was going on with life. People who felt vulnerable were masked up and, you know, isolating themselves or otherwise, you know, doing what they could to, to keep distance, to protect themselves. But I saw very few people living in fear. And after what we had been through in the months previous to that, throughout all of 2020, it was such a breath of fresh air. I've got a great article here from Casey Carlisle who convincingly um, explains If you really want to be safe, then leave people alone. Now, see if you can follow the reasoning here. To me, this made a lot of sense. Casey Carlisle says, With the needless panic over the latest coronavirus variant, the parasitic cast, that would be the politicians, seem very much interested in repeating the previous administration's blunders, despite many of those very same people characterizing the other guy's actions as brazen assaults on civil liberties. Now, whether people are finally fed up with the tax fed remains uh, to, to be seen, but he says, I'm not holding my breath. If the latest political edicts are just rebranded tricks from March of 2020, 
And he says, I fear that an overwhelming majority will happily comply, so long as safety is the justification. If you accept that less than 10% of the population are brave enough to say no more, which is easier, convincing 90% of the population to change their mind or showing them an easier path to their beloved safety. Now, Casey Carlisle says, look, if the electorate is becoming increasingly divided, then why in our democracy aren't predators among the political class paralleling said division? The more that the political left lurch leftward, the more that most on the political right seem only to indignantly drop anchor. Why aren't one side's political attacks on liberty met with equally potent attacks on coercion? Which has more bite? Scolding the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or writing a bill to abolish it? Amending the state's malignant growth will do nothing to halt its trajectory. Only abolishment will provide meaningful reform. So why is that bill an anomaly rather than the norm? He says the vast majority of the electorate yearn for safety. So why won't the liberty-loving cater to that desire in a manner that's antithetical to their opponent's strategy? For example, getting mugged is just as unsafe as it sounds. So imagine the political points awarded to the party who get to claim responsibility for abolishing the Internal Revenue Service. After all, love of wealth isn't partisan. Some might argue that reform is easier on the ears than abolish, and therefore abolish lacks mass appeal. But what's the alternative? The answer is the status quo. And he says, I'm as guilty as the next American for having a pathetically short memory. But my goodness, we're talking about the 9-11 of 2020, not the original. So it sure would be great to try something new because, as I wrote in June, to say that the misery of the last 15 months can't be repeated brings new meaning to the term wishful thinking. So how about telling the 90% something they might actually hear? Safety is liberty. Robert Barnes has always said, you're not safe if you're not free. The past 20-plus months bolster Barnes' claim and vivify how tragically determined the lockdowners are to repeat their liberty-crushing strategies for achieving safety. Donald Boudreaux recently repeated the oft-ignored warning, beware of unintended consequences. So perhaps the cast of characters this time around will be more receptive to the fact that unnatural interventions produce far more negative, unintended consequences than does natural human action. With consent, one intends to produce something that inherently seeks to avoid negative, unintended consequences. But with politics, one intends to destroy something at the intended expense of a persecuted group. From H.L. Mencken's 1926 Notes on Democracy, quote, The average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. End quote. And again, the past 20 months prove Mencken a sage as strongly as Barnes's observation sagacious. Mencken implies that the average man can have one or the other, but Barnes makes it clear that one can have both. Isn't it obvious that people flourish in actual safety? Are people flocking to Florida, Texas, and Idaho in order to feel unsafe? But the thing is, when safety is imposed, everyone is less safe. Safety is liberty. Liberty is consent. Lockdowns violate consent. Mandates violate consent. Prohibitions violate consent. All are political, so all lack consent and safety. 
not as it's and and, and there's nothing contractual about politics. <clears throat> but those who worship it regard liberty as an obstacle to safety, not as its foundation. So the unintended consequences of unnatural interventions will likely be unsafe, as evidenced by the most restricted states. So highlighting the consequences of liberty is likely more effective than disparaging the consequences of coercion. You want to be safe? Then leave people alone. Want to jeopardize your safety? Well, then don't mind your own business. Now, Casey Carlisle says, don't get me wrong. I'm just as repulsed by the gleeful cowardice as the next guy. But I have to ask myself and the like-minded, other than the short-lived satisfaction gained from ridiculing the parasites and their sycophants, wouldn't we rather sell them something? And the idea that we're selling is mutually beneficial. Hating them is a dead end on their own street. Showing them of other ways that provide what they seek produces more intended consequences. And because safety is subjective, all but the paternalists seek similar ends but different means. So when given the choice between mandating safety and actually being safe, will the perpetually paranoid pursue forced safety or will they embrace the safety to which is mutually consented, one that allows each individual to interpret safety to their own liking? Casey Carlisle says, I'd like to make it easier for them to choose the latter, not give them excuses to double down on the never-ending insanity. So no need to stop hating the parentalists or the paternalists. But he says, if our scathing rebuttals don't conclude with an elevator pitch, what's the point? I feel like this kind of reinforces something that has become sort of an unofficial motto, at least for me, for the last few years, and that is, better to be known for what you stand for than simply what you're against. And I realize that can be a thin line to walk. It's, it's, it's not always easy to do because some of the things that, uh, that are being forced upon us and have been forced on us over the last couple of years, I mean, I, I feel a strong urge to stand up and vigorously oppose them. I want to name names. I want to point fingers and you know tell them, these are the people responsible. I want people held accountable for the destruction and the suffering that they've caused. But again, you know, I, I have to stop and step back and ask myself, what's really motivating me here? Is it a desire for vengeance? Is it a desire to control the people who want to control me? So it's a good reminder. You know, be sure people know what you stand for more so than simply, oh yeah, he's against this or she's against that. I realize it takes extra effort. But if the goal really is something as lofty as individual liberty, if it's something as important as property rights, if it's something as essential as freedom of conscience, well, then that puts a, that puts a burden on us to use the highest and best means possible to promote that message. In other words, we can't fudge the facts and we can't engage in coercion. We shouldn't browbeat and we shouldn't shame I guess to put it to, to put it more delicately, we should be inspiring people to consider embracing that point of view rather than requiring them to do so. Is it hard to inspire? Yeah, sometimes, but it's worth it. This is the Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to send some love out in the direction of SewingQuiltingCenter.com. For my St. George, Utah listeners, this is a very familiar place. After all, this is a business started by Ken Harker back in 1984. You know, in that time, it has only changed owners two times, and now it's owned by Teresa and Eric Alsop. And they are wonderful people, and I'm just here to tell you that whether you're into sewing or not, sewing is a big deal. There is a subculture among us that lives and breathes sewing, quilting, uh, embroidery, and if, if you're not one of them, that's okay, but I'll bet you know somebody who is. So if you're looking for baby lock sergers, brothers sewing and embroidery machines, uh, or handy quilter long arm quilting machines, you'll find them all at sewingquiltingcenter.com. You can also visit the store if you're in the St. George area, 779 South Bluff Street. Look, they sell the machines. They can service them. They can actually train you how to use those machines. And I'm thinking having the ability to create, or for that matter, to maintain and fix your own clothing or create things like this would be a really good thing to have. Of course, you can get fabric, thread, all the things you need right there in one location. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes or better still stop in and see them. Again, thanks to SewingQuiltingCenter.com for being one of my sponsors. So if you want to be safe, leave people alone. I don't know if you bought into it or not, but I think it was an idea worth considering. Along those same lines, got a great essay from Joaquin Book on the virtues of leaving people alone, which, if nothing else, is just a great reminder about how most of the things we get wound up over are things we choose to let, us, let uh, upset us. Joaquin Book, this was a piece he wrote back in October of 2020, says, A few years ago, I encountered this hilarious video where a scooping journalist wanted a juicy opinion out of a student. Now, it might have been at an American university, and the topic was a a school that had just installed gender-neutral bathrooms. Shocking, explosive stuff, sure to ruffle some feathers. But unfortunately for this journalist, she'd stumbled across a libertarian one of those ethically stringent and consistent types that followed the logic of their ideological persuasion to its radical end. So when the journalist asked this individual's opinion on the new bathrooms, he responded, I don't care. But what do you think about anyone, man or woman, use the same bathrooms as if he hadn't understood the question? The answer, I don't care. Well, what if you're in the bathroom and a woman is in there too? Doesn't that bother you? I don't care. Now, Joaquin Book says the journalist was noticeably flustered. She wasn't getting anywhere with this guy. No juicy quote, no indignation capable of being broadcast as news elsewhere. And he says to most people, this is a a superficial interpretation of nihilism. Ruthless, awful, distasteful individualism that doesn't care one straw for other people or the society in which they live. These, the, the kind of people who want to see the world burn. But he says that's probably not true. Our unruly libertarian probably cares about his cat, his family, his loved ones, his favorite band or football team. We all do. He has just enough intellectual decency not to let his personal feelings get in the way of his thoroughly decent ideological conviction. The lives that others live are none of your business. What others do with their bathroom visits is not his concern. Which clothes others wear, who they sleep with, what they mix in their coffees, what substances they put in their bodies, what they do for a living, 
What they eat, how that's produced, where they travel, how they get there, is none of his business, to each his own. This libertarian understood what so few people are willing to understand these days. Other people's opinions, beliefs, words, or convictions are not some indication of their societal value, representing or reflecting their position in some cosmic battle between us, the good guys, and them, the evil guys. How much somebody pretends to care about meaningless or contradictory things is not some essential feature of their identity, crucial to others' life. It's none of your business. So instead of snapping, I don't care, which sounds a little too detached for me, he says, I normally use, you do you, girl. The sentiment is the same. To each his or her own. And I think he actually uses some Latin here. De gustibus non est disputandum. I hope I said that right. There's no accounting for taste. I don't know what you like or want in economic jargon, what your preferences are or what your constraints are. If you want to sleep with men or really don't want to sleep with men, that's on you. If you want to burn flags or books, that's on you. I just demand that you voluntarily buy them first. If you want to have intercourse with a dead chicken before you eat it, he says, be my guest. And yes, I stole these examples from Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, if that wasn't clear. It is human to have instinctual feelings of disgust to one or many of these actions. What Haidt was trying to do is conjure up scenarios where those feelings of distrust, or disgust rather, have absolutely no damage to anyone else. Now what libertarianism is about is overriding those feelings with reason. Accepting that nobody was physically harmed or nobody's property rights violated, so the practice may go on. None of your business. Now he says this is actually explosive stuff, revolutionary even. Quite literally world-changing as Deidre McCluskey and Art Carden outline in a new book coming out this month, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. How the bourgeoisie deal, how the bourgeois rather deal with, how the bourgeois deal enriched the world. Had to struggle to get through that one. The bottom line is, don't interfere with other people. Leave them be. Don't run around and police their divergent, innocent opinions and tastes. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Your liberty to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Until then, or when you can readily foresee such a swing, leave people alone. The obviousness of anarchy, as legal scholar John Hasness remarked. My life is none of your business. Your life is none of my concern. You do you, girl. Now, I understand. You may, you may disagree. And I, and I have to strike a balance because at some level, I think that uh, I think God expects us to look out for one another. But I want to qualify that statement by saying I don't think he expects us to look out for one another as in I need to treat you like you are my pet and correct you and dictate to you the way that things are going to be or else. I mean, come on, it's, it's the Christmas season. The people who are out there looking for ways to serve and to uplift and to otherwise reaffirm the value of the people around them, be it that homeless person standing at the freeway off-ramp, you know, seeking donations or uh, some would call it just panhandling, you know, whatever you prefer. Or maybe it's just a neighbor who's, uh, you know, suffered a, a loss of a loved one and is, is going through a time of crushing loneliness during the holidays. 
I think we have, you know, a God-given duty. But it's a voluntary kind of thing. You can't just go out there and draft somebody. And, and, and really, who wants to be the project, right? Nobody, nobody wants to think of themselves as, oh, look, people came over because pitiful me. You know, they think I'm their project and they're here to fix me. I hope you can see the point that uh, the things that we get most worked up about, the things that make us angry and sometimes make us reflexively snap into, I need to fix that and I need to make sure that everybody knows, um, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, you can't fly that flag. That flag offends some people and it's my crusade to make sure your flag goes away. Some people might be happy, but it's still an example of coercive and imposition of what I think is best because I know better than you. That's, that's not a great way to help people. Just leave them alone. Anything that's peaceful should really be none of our business. At the same time, that doesn't mean we're all taking the Ayn Rand approach of, you know, you're on your own. <laughs> Tough luck, but, you know, I guess you'll figure it out. We can be there to support people. That's got to take place voluntarily. In fact, truly, if, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, charity has to be voluntary in order for it to be charity. I guess that's one of the things I love so much about the Christmas season is I see people's, uh, uh, their, their defenses or at least their reluctance to engage in charitable behavior and charitable acts. The resistance goes down. And I think it has to do with the spirit of the season, but it, it has to be a voluntary thing. If it's something that, you know, well, we took this money out of your paycheck, Brian, and now we're going to go uh, give it to the needy to make sure that uh, nobody goes hungry. That may be a fine and lofty goal, but the bottom line is, at some level, coercion was used to take something that was mine and then put it to a use that somebody else deemed, you know, the highest possible use. Will some good be accomplished? Perhaps. And definitely some bureaucrat will skim a little off the top, you know, for overhead. But the real virtue, the authentic virtue, is found in us voluntarily finding ways to serve, lift one another, I guess in another way to say it, to help each other find our way home. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. My goal here is not to tell you what to think. It's not to convince you that I'm some kind of a guru who has all the answers to life. I just am, uh, I'm an average guy who really loves and appreciates all the blessings of freedom. And I want to encourage others to recognize and, and appreciate them as well. But in order to do that, you've got to be willing to question much of what is being broadcast at us 24-7 because uh, there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of disinformation out there, and people who are determined that whatever you and I think should fit very neatly onto this 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion. I reject that. I think we ought to be our own fact-checkers, and we can trust ourselves 
We just have to we just have to build up the calluses and get used to the the work of discovering the truth. It's not something that's handed to us by someone in authority. So I welcome you as a fellow wrong thinker. Please pull up a chair. Find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. And when we understand the world around us, we better understand how we can use our influence most wisely wherever we happen to be standing. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So let's dive in here. Hypothetically speaking, if you were ever to look around you and come to the conclusion that legitimate tyranny was at your doorstep, just hypothetically, would you make the mistake of playing the tyrant's game? Now, when I say playing the tyrant's game, I'm talking about would you obey the tyrant in hopes that, uh, you know, they would, oh, I don't know, stop trying to flatten the curve after two weeks. Here we are two years later, and you know, it seems like the game is still going on. I got an article here from Jeff Thompson. This was published on theorganicprepper.com, and it's titled, You Can Play a Tyrant's Game, But You Still Lose. Jeff Thompson says, If there's one thing that history has shown us, it's that to play games with tyrants is to place yourself in a losing position. The house always wins, and you're playing against somebody who's more than willing to cheat with extra cards up his sleeves. Consider that uh, two weeks to flatten the curve has turned into year two. Now, at first, people were told not to wear masks. A woman in Virginia at the 50,000-strong gun rally in Richmond was actually arrested for wearing a mask back in January of 2020. And then just a few months later, the public was being arrested for not wearing a mask. The rules had changed. People began wearing masks as had been decreed upon them, but the masks with incorporated one-way valves were then deemed to be unsafe to the world around you. And so for a brief period of time, the most popular N95 mask designs were banned, and pieces of cloth torn from old denim jeans were now used instead. Serving staff in Maine went from being treated as human beings to essentially having dog cones placed around their necks. Then two masks at once were ordered to be worn. Stay at home, we were told, and people did so. And afterward, we saw California have a year's worth of suicides in a single month. Children have been packing psychiatry clinics. The toll on mental health has been unprecedented because human beings who had been created as social creatures were locked in solitary confinement on a planetary level. Jeff Thompson says people complied. They suffered completely deleterious effects from doing so. And now, now people are locked in their homes. Now people are having soldiers show up at their homes. Don't go to work, we were told. People complied. Now the lines at food pantries are longer than what we've ever seen. You just need a single jab, we were told. People complied. Then they told us we needed a second. Many complied. Then they told us we needed a third, a fourth. Jeff Thompson says, I was talking with a paramedic the other day, and I was told the only reason he got the jab, which he didn't want, was so that he wouldn't have to wear a mask anymore. Well, just a few months later, that policy was rescinded, and everybody had to wear a mask once more, regardless of jab status. He was played. 
And Jeff Thompson says, are you seeing the pattern here? Decrees are issued, and perhaps initially they seem minor, such as it's just two weeks. People comply with the minor decree, and then the goalposts are immediately shifted. Hey, if we got them to do this now, let's see if we can't get them to do this. Churches were told they couldn't have more than 10 people in a Sunday school classroom, and people complied. What is to keep those same churches from also or from not also complying when that number gets whittled down to five or four or only two people in the classroom? What is to keep those same churches from complying and now only letting in 50 people into the building on a Sunday rather than the original 500 that would normally attend? Goalposts were set, people complied, and the goalposts were promptly moved even further. This is the means by which man is further and further carried into complete and utter tyranny, into the world of concentration camps, of being lined up against the brick wall with his family. This is how man is marched straight into an Auschwitz at Dachau or a Ho Chi Minh or down a Ho Chi Minh trail. First you must comply with what is minor, and then we gradually move step by step into the major we never would have even dreamed of in our nightmares. Demonize those who disagree with you comes their command, and we've undoubtedly seen the work of this propaganda firsthand. Because the TV said so, people are now more willing to go out and begin treating their fellow man as if they are not only the enemy, but worthy of public shaming. So what comes next? What's the next minor goalpost here to move the mass of the compliant into? Daisy Luther, who publishes The Organic Prepper, has covered this subject in her post on the othering of society, and it's linked in the story here. Othering is a Marxist tactic the world has seen again and again. We all know what comes next. You end up in a camp, if not worse. It's just that some of you are too timid to believe it. The TV still has too firm a grip of your mind, and and unwillingly you remain a useful tool for tyrants. So the story is about a Jew in 1930s Germany. Nazis had been attacking firearm ownership amongst the populace for a long time, particularly among the Jews. The Nazi government ordered a turn-in. Well, this Jew complied, heading towards the turn-in center with his small pistol. As he waited in line, Nazi police approached him. The Nazi police found the Jew to be in possession of an illegal weapon and sent him to a concentration camp. The man's name was Alfred Flatto, and he would die there. He attempted to play the tyrant's game, and he lost. Are you tired of feeding the beast our government has become? Jeff Thompson says you've got to get outside of the system. So he says, grab our guide to starving the beast. It's linked right there. And remember that tyrants are liars. They have no inherent moral code. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to make them happy. Maybe lay down and become a human doormat so the jackboot can stomp on the human face for eternity. He says, look at Australia. People are protesting and resisting and in turn having their children taken away, being imprisoned, having essential services cut off, or being taken to camps. With tyrants, the end goal is power. They're on a personal quest for it, for more of it, and they will never cease their jury, their journey rather. Absolute power is what they're after. And remember, as Lord Acton said, it corrupts absolutely. This is how you end up in a world where Russian lawmakers advocate for the execution of those who disagree with their beliefs, or Irish lawmakers recommend making it so large segments of the population are banned from buying food. Of a world where Australians begin arresting people in their homes 
because of Facebook posts talking about organizing a protest. Tyrants desire power, and they will use ever-increasing levels of force to get what they want. You can count on it. So do you intend to comply further? How far would it have to go before you would say no? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ease up here. You're probably feeling like, ah, ah, <laughs> this is making me anxious. But these are the kind of questions that have got to be considered and reasoned out before tyranny is standing on your doorstep knocking and demanding to see your papers or, you know, threatening to take you away because you, you know, haven't uh, received, you know, this medical procedure. I wish this was just science fiction that I was discussing. I wish this was just, you know, the figment of my imagination. I don't think it is. And no matter how we convince ourselves, well, you know, I can sit this one out. I'm, I'm going to hide from this one. I'm not going to be affected by it. I don't think we have that option, at least not anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to rise up in some kind of bloody revolution. But I guess this is, this is the time where you need to be very certain about where you stand, how far will your compliance go, where would you draw the line? There are a lot of us who've already reached that point and went, wow, I found my line in the sand. Now it's a trench. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you'd like me to email a copy of my show notes to you each time I publish them, I'm not going to clutter up your uh, email inbox. I'm not going to take your information and sell it so you start getting a bunch of advertisements. But I would love to send you the show notes that I lovingly put together every day so that you can uh, click and follow the links to your heart's content. If you're really serious about uh, doing your homework, it's, it's a great way. I'm, I'm willing to put you uh, in connection. I'm willing to connect you to some of the people that I have come to trust as reasoned, principled commentators who aren't out there just, you know, pushing partisan, you know, mantras at people. So all you have to do, go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, click the subscribe button, and I will send it to you every day. So, the idea that you've got to stand on your own feet, I get. That's a, that's a scary thought for some people. But I'm going to take it just a little bit further. Got a great article here from Thomas Luongo. And even if you're not a fan of Ayn Rand, her novel Atlas Shrugged really foreshadowed some of the abusive policymaking that we're seeing today. And if you're one of those people who, like John Galt, is serious about telling Leviathan, no. Well, this is the time to stop fearing John Galt. That's the, that's the title here. It's time for all good men to stop fearing John Galt. Thomas Luongo says there comes a point in every person's life when they have to reckon with the person in the mirror. <clears throat> Who am I? What do I want? Where am I going? And since the beginning of the COVID-9-11 story, <clears throat> he says, I've watched it break so many people who couldn't answer these basic questions. The fear of the virus uncovered a lot about all of us, and for many, unfortunately, it provoked their inner tyrant. And he relates the example of how last year, during the height of the COVID insanity, after publicly hanging up on an unhinged Lee Stranahan on, live on Sputnik Radio, 
Thomas Luongo tweeted out this tweet. And it said, when you hit someone's existential fear, that's when you uncover their inner tyrant. And when something is beyond their capacity to understand, that's when they turn to projecting that fear on other people. This is what was done to justify the lockdown. Now, this was tweeted out in April of 2020. So this was right in the thick of lockdowns. Now, he says this wasn't just directed at Lee, but it really was. The hard investigative journalist of February 2020 turned into a sniveling, state-worshipping baby by late April. Fear of death uncovered his Room 101. That incident, among others, eventually took down his radio show with certified stand-up guy Garland Nixon. Today, that show is a shadow of its former self. Now, Tom Luongo says, I don't know if my action was the catalyst for the changes that came, but I do know that after that day, nothing was the same. And he says, the sad truth is that Lee wasn't alone. His collapse was just the most public version I ran into personally. But when you buy into fear... You sell your reason. Gone is your skepticism as your world collapses. Your eyes focus on your next step, too afraid to raise them to the horizon. There is no bigger picture. There's just the moment. For months now, he says, we've lived among people terrorized by a story, not a virus, but a story that told them that they are the heroes for being afraid and the skeptics are the villains. To save ourselves, we just have to give up our humanity and submit to an authority incapable of telling us the truth. Because the truth is, we actually had very little to fear. These are the real villains. The Fauci's, Biden's, Schwab's, Saki's, Trudeau's, and anyone who still believes their patter. It was never about the disease. It was about control and the real damage being done to our psyches, our bodies, and our communities. Exactly as I argued to Lee on the radio 18 months ago before I hung up on him. He says, they created the fear and then manipulated it into something violent. They preyed on common decency and humanity, twisting it into something evil, which is now plain for anyone who lifts his eyes off the ground to see. Because vaccine mandates are the ultimate form of state violence, the death penalty notwithstanding. Once they had duped a large enough segment, so terrorized they would rather die than admit they'd been duped. Those villains pushed the ultimate Hobson's choice on us. Get the vaccine against COVID-9-11, and you can have your life back. But it was never their life to take in the first place. We gave it to them, hoping they weren't as evil as many suspected. And Tom Luongo says it's amazing how just one year after a summer of looting and burning over police brutality against a black man who overdosed on fentanyl, These same people are making excuses for even worse police violence against people walking around in sunshine, unmasked. To them, we are the untermenschen, the unvaxxed, the unclean. And that makes their violence justified because, to them, we are the ones keeping things from getting back to normal. Now, once the threat from COVID-9-11 was well established, rationality should have returned. But it hasn't. Too many people are still stuck in Room 101, wedded to their shame over being duped by villains. Tom Luongo says they now wish death by COVID on those who refuse to get a shot for a virus that has a defined low probability of killing them and for which multiple therapeutic options are available. He says if they would just shut up, trust the science, and let doctors practice medicine, life would really return to something close to normal.
but it's increasingly obvious to enough people that these mandates don't measure up to the threat of the virus. Every day it becomes clearer that this is about their fear of us seizing back the power we gave them. To save themselves from the COVID, they wish it on us, just like Winston Smith, who looked in the mirror and betrayed his love to serve a master who hates him as much as he hates himself. It doesn't matter if the vaccines are safe and effective or not. Luongo says, I'm not here to argue that. That's your personal choice. Make it as you see fit. No blame, no shame. What's important is that it is no one else's choice. Further, it's not your personal choice to tell me I can't participate in civil society if I don't get the shot. Or like Joe Rogan, chose a different path to treating COVID-9-11 than you would. Because Winston always had a choice. He could choose to face his fear and finally become a man like Joe Rogan, or he can project his fear onto real men and stay into his per- stay in his personal hell for all the world to laugh at. He's got a couple of nice tweets, by the way, that uh, that that illustrate this. Watching Keith Oberman's Two Minutes of Hate is revealing of everything that is wrong with the COVID nine eleven story. And Tom Luongo says that same choice is now directly in our path, vaxxed or unvaxxed. COVID-9-11 is never going away. Neither will the flu, the common cold, or any other virus endemic to the environment. Life is risk, and it belongs to those willing to face those risks to keep the world from breaking. So cower in fear if you like, but scapegoating the unvaxxed won't save you. He says, I saw this in March 2020 saying we need to be brave and celebrate everybody willing to go to work to make the things we need to treat the sick and protect the healthy. Because in a real economy, everyone is an essential worker. This is because everyone contributes in their small way to the fully functional world that ensures the shelves are stocked, the energy flows, and our meager triumphs over nature's hostility to our presence remain in place. But for now, for months now, we've been openly threatened with having our lives taken away because we don't have our party registration papers up to date. We've all wrestled at some level with our disbelief that things would degrade this badly and this quickly. So if you remember in Ayn Rand's novel, John Galt built the engine that could change the world but refused to give it to the world he lived in. Who is John Galt? Well... Tom Luongo says he's really just the best version of ourselves that knows who we are, what we want, and where we will end up. And he says it's past time that we stop fearing the loss that comes with stating that directly. This is a great article. And if you take nothing else away from it, just remember bullies are cowards and your consent today feeds their addiction to fear. You can check this out in the show notes. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I feel like I've been on a little bit of a tear today, and and so I apologize if if it sounds like, wow, he's really venting. But, man, such interesting times. 
And it's it's uh, it's marvelous to have a platform from which to speak the truth as best I understand it. If if this isn't the truth that you're ready for, if it's something that just doesn't resonate, I'm not offended. It doesn't bother me at all if you say, Brian, that's just not for me. That's okay. But there are people who are actively looking for uh, a take that is different from, from what is approved opinion and uh, that hopefully reflects the reality of what's going on. I do my best to provide that and to direct you towards people who are providing that that voice on a daily basis. So I thank you for coming along for the ride. You know, looking at the way that various nations reacted to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's very clear not everybody went full authoritarian. In fact, Brian Kaplan says that by measuring overreaction, we can be grateful that not everybody went the way of Australia. He has an article here about measuring overreaction and says, Scott Summers happy to admit that we overreacted to COVID, but presents the overreaction as relatively mild. So Scott Summers says, quote, Pundits often criticize the U.S. government for overreacting to COVID, especially the excessive mandates for masks, vaccines, etc. I share their concern. But I also wonder where some of these people have been. On a list of regulatory overreaction, These mandates don't even make my top 100. For decades, overreaction to tiny safety risks has been getting worse with no end in sight. Unlike airline crashes, COVID has killed roughly 800,000 Americans despite all sorts of social distancing, of which nearly 200,000 are less than 65 years old. Yes, we are overreacting, but it's not like with airline crashes where the risk is entirely imaginary. COVID really is something dangerous, not in absolute terms, but at least relative to the almost absurd safety of modern America. End quote. Now, Brian Kaplan says, you know, in a sense, Scott is completely right. If you measure overreaction using the ratio of the reaction to the actual harm, then the COVID response probably doesn't even make the U.S. top 100. After all, many government crusades target problems that cause zero harm like or like immigration, negative harm. In another sense, however, Scott is completely wrong. Brian Kaplan says if you measure overreaction using the total amount of effort that fails a cost-benefit test, well then, COVID has arguably been the greatest overreaction in U.S. history. He says, by my math, the total cost of the reaction for the U.S. was roughly 15 times the total cost of the pandemic itself. Similar calculations for Canada are also included there. But he says, that's, a, that's 15 times a genuinely enormous cost of 800,000 lives, implying many trillions of dollars of overreaction. Now, in contrast, if the total cost of the reaction to shoe bombs was 15 times the total cost of shoe bombs the total harm would still be trivial because shoe bombs themselves are trivial. You could have a thousand to one ratio and the sum of the harm of the overreaction would remain moderate. Now you might argue that a thousand to one ratio is somehow more intellectually jarring, but if you could push a button to get rid of just one overreaction, he says you should clearly push the button that does undoes more total harm, not the one with the most ludicrous cost-benefit ratio. Now, Sumner also remarks, quote, I don't disagree with those who point to excessive fear of COVID, but why is anyone surprised? I'm surprised the regulations aren't far worse. Given our history of overreaction, I would have expected us to emulate Australia, end quote. 
And Brian Kaplan says, indeed. Which is why, despite everything, I'm now convinced that the U.S. had the least bad COVID response of any major English-speaking country. The U.K., Canada, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand all beat us in terms of fatalities and pop- to population. But almost no part of the U.S. ever put innocent people <clears throat> under house arrest. In fact, he says, for most of COVID, I lived in one of the strictest regions of the U.S., yet there was never a day I couldn't walk outside with my family mask-free. I never even had to pretend to shop or exercise. More importantly, he says, due to America's strange experiment in federalist dictatorship, large swaths of the U.S. returned to near normalcy in, in a matter of months. They didn't merely allow these states' original populations to, to breathe, breathe freely again. This also provided an escape valve for locationally flexible, risk-tolerant people around the country. And despite some minor exceptions, no U.S. state seriously tried to close its borders to other states. Thank you, Texas, Florida, and Tennessee, where I've now lived for about five months of COVID. Brian Kaplan says, do I damn the U.S. with faint praise? Sure. But when I talk to my friends elsewhere in the Anglosphere, I still pity them for the tyranny they've endured and often continue to endure. I'm hoping I have the chance to get a fellow on here who recently moved back to the U.S. from Australia. My understanding is getting here was a major undertaking. Just getting out of Australia was huge. But he made it. I'm trying to get that set up right now with a good friend. I will let you know when when I'm able to pull that off, but you want to hear from somebody who was actually there, actually undergoing <clears throat> what was what was taking place? I think you'll you'll find this worthwhile. One final thought here as I uh, finish things up. Um, got an article here from Kent McManigal about it's best to leave people alone and let them make their choices. He says, I love people. I also know that humans are deeply flawed. This combination explains why I'm a libertarian. Every other position insists that no one is smart enough to run their own life while also believing that people are smart enough to run the lives of people they've never met. This running of strangers' lives is carried out through voting and wielding political power. It's not a realistic position. The libertarian position recognizes that most people are better at running their own lives than others would be, and no one's qualified to run the lives of other people not by a vote, nor by having political power. Plus, no one has the right to run anyone else's life. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will be successful at running their own life. Those few who can't are free to ask for help from those who are equally free to help or not. And they can choose to do things, commit crimes, which may result in suffering acts of self-defense directed against them. They're free to choose their path, but complaining about where the path leads won't change things. Kent McManigal says even those who uh, can't run their own lives have the right to try. No one has the right or the imaginary political authority to forbid them from trying. Letting them do it wrong is the right thing to do if they won't listen to your advice. I know parents are like, oh boy, (laughs) been there. Kent McManigal says the person who tries to control others is worse than the person who won't control himself, regardless of how things turn out. And he says, I speak as someone who has suffered from the bad choices of people who didn't control themselves. So don't imagine I have some rosy picture of everything being butterflies and rainbows if people are left to make their own choices. 
But he says some of some of those you think can't run their own lives have simply never been given the chance. Either they've been coddled like children and told others are doing what's best for them, or they've been punished for making choices that others don't like. So the loving thing to do is to give them the chance and let them live with the consequences of their choices. Now that includes being held accountable and owing restitution for any actual harm they cause. But he asks, how can they ever be functional members of society otherwise? Truth is, most people live up or down to your expectations. Keep your hands off and give them the chance. I've got a link to this in the article, and I'm going to throw a quick plug in here for everythingvoluntary.com. I've been following this uh, this site for quite some time. It is quite an interesting collection of, of contributors, always something thought-provoking. One thing I really love is they're, they're usually pretty concise, very succinct in the essays that they publish. But it's always great material. And best of all, you can actually visit everything-voluntary.com and you can subscribe to where they will send you their daily updates in, in email form. And it's just a great way to add to your understanding of the world. You're not going to agree with everything you read there. I don't. But I still feel better for having read it. I'm convinced that I have a, I have a more viable uh, outlook on the world for seeing what they have to say. And it's listed as one of my beloved uh, resources for wrong thinkers and for people who are, are serious about owning their own worldview. You can check out that Resources for Wrong Thinkers on my website, or again, just go to everything-voluntary.com. I think you'll find a lot of worthwhile material. Okay, got a special guest joining us in the final segment of today's show. Please stay with me. Some relevant information that could be very useful to you or perhaps to someone you love. Don't forget to sign up for my show notes. Hit the subscribe button when you go to thebrianhideshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm pleased to welcome a special guest to the program, and uh, her name is Shems Tate. Shems is a clinic director, a nurse practitioner, and neuropathy specialist. This may seem like a really strange topic to discuss, and Shems, thank you, first of all, for being on the show, but um, people, I think, should know a little bit more about uh, neuropathy. And, and I wonder if, first of all, for our audience, could you tell us just a little bit about what neuropathy is and would people be surprised to know how many people actually have to deal with this on a daily basis? Thank you for bringing me on. But neuropathy is simply nerve damage. And there is over 100 reasons why someone gets neuropathy, but the most common ones is going to be diabetes, some type of spine injury, but also medications can cause neuropathy. So again, there is a host of reasons why this happens to somebody. But what is crucial is identify and then get to the root cause of it. What are the key symptoms that people would want to look out for to know whether they or a loved one are dealing with peripheral neuropathy? Yeah, so as I mentioned, neuropathy is nerve damage. And what happens is these nerves begin to slowly die. And as they die, patients will experience things such as numbness, 
tingling, burning, cramping, decreased balance. And this can happen in hands and feet. So what happens is as these nerves die with time, their symptoms get more and more severe. And lots of times neuropathy can manifest as something as maybe I just slept wrong on my arm, or maybe I'm just dehydrated, or maybe I'm just having some aches and pains. But again, this is the type of condition that is progressive and it just gets worse with time unless we do something about it. Now, Shams, traditionally, how, how is neuropathy treated? What's the, the standard approach to treating it? So medications such as gabapentin and other medications are what's prescribed for this condition. And as you know, any of the medications are not designed to repair. They're not designed to heal the nerve damage. They're not designed to do anything but mask the problem. So what becomes a real concern is that as these patients continue to take these medications, well, then they think that, okay, well, this is numbing my brain, so I'm not feeling my feet. So while this is happening below the surface and the damage is more and more progressed, they are completely unaware of what's happening. So that's why medications are just so very inefficient. So it's not, it's not so much fixing the problem as just masking the symptoms and making them more tolerable. Absolutely. So it's thinking, think of it as you bang your head against the wall and you take a Tylenol for it. Well, now you don't have a headache, but you continue <laughs> to bang your head against the wall. That's just not helping the actual problem. So it, it is is truly a very, very concerning condition. And again, as these symptoms continue to progress, uh, the elderly deal with the imbalance. And as you know, when patients, the elderly, when they fall, it can lead to fractures, and then this can be an extremely complicated recovery. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the importance of treating neuropathy without medication. I, I would guess a lot of people didn't know that was an option, but spell out for us, how is that done? Yes, yeah, so we deal with a lot of patients who come into us who come from their doctors that are telling them this is absolutely not something that we can help you. You have to deal with this take these medications and and this is what your life is going to be like when in reality there's absolutely things we can do. So what's more important than anything is to identify why this happened. Where are we in the progression of this disease? And then how can we go about allowing your body to be put in a state that is compatible with health and healing? Once we're able to accomplish that and remove the assault of why this happened in the first place, your body is a remarkable machine and it is able to completely not only recover, heal, and repair, but also reverse some of these symptoms. Our patients do incredibly well. Yeah, we, we do underestimate the, the body's ability to fix itself. Tell me about some of the feedback you get from patients who have, have been through this treatment without medication. Yeah, so our patients come to us. We've seen patients who come in with walkers, canes, and their balance is just so very unstable. And just you know, walking around the block, hanging out with their grandkids, walking their dogs, being able to take walks with their significant other. It's just something still very challenging and scary, and, and rightfully so. But we have so many patients who have these symptoms reversed. They no longer need these assistive devices. They're able to sleep at night. They're able to have their quality of life. Uh, they're able to do their job properly and just enjoy what they were meant to do. And there's something that happens when we lose our mobility. I think we all know people who, you know, for one reason or another, neuropathy could very well be a part of it. As their mobility slows down or stops, it seems like so many other areas of their life also begin to deteriorate. Absolutely. So we tell our patients is basically what, what, what they experience is that their life just begins to shrink. And they get hesitant to participating in things like family gatherings or going to the grocery store because it is 
it, their feet become something that consumes their thought process. It is constantly at the back of their mind and they're just worrying about what that's going to look like. So they just hesitate to participate in day-to-day life. And, and, and that's not a way to, to age. That's not a way to enjoy life. I mean, it, it's just so very sad. And again, there is hope. There's absolute help. We, we are able to see these changes happen so very rapidly. So what we have seen is that the patients are able to get their quality of life back. They're able to do the things that they wanted to do, whether it's hanging out with family members or being able to take their dog for a walk or just enjoying each other, being healthy and, and not have their feet be something that is constantly at the back of their mind. Gotcha. So let's let's make sure that the people who are hearing this message recognize who is the best candidate, you know, for this this treatment. Absolutely. So the best candidate is somebody who is tired of taking medications, someone who is tired of dealing with being told that this is the way they have to live their life. Uh, We want to see patients that are willing to do something about their health, willing to make their health their number one priority, and motivated to get this condition taken care of. Uh, Absolutely, you have to come in for an exam. Our exams are completely painless. I know some of these patients have been Pride and poked, and our exams are completely painless. We do a sensory exam. We also do thermal images to show us blood flow. And based on that and the health history and some other factors, we'll be able to sit down and have an honest conversation with you. If this is truly neuropathy, how progressive it is, and what can we do about reversing that? Okay, in the show notes, I'm going to include a telephone number that uh, my listeners can call if they would like to uh, to see about setting up one of those those consultations. Um, the The business is called True Health, and again, we've been speaking with Shems Tate, who's a clinic director, a nurse practitioner, and neuropathy specialist. Shems, I so appreciate you shining some light on this. I know it's something that a lot of people wouldn't think about unless they were dealing with it, but you've you've given us some great food for thought today. Yes, thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you so much, Shems. Uh, we're going to cut you loose here. I am going to mention in the show notes, which you will find at the com. I have a phone number for uh, Pure Health, which is uh, what uh, Shems represents. You can call 435-442-4848 to uh, set up a consultation. This is particularly for my listeners in the St. George area. Again, it's in the show notes. I'll give the number one more time here, 435 442 48. One quick thought here is, as I wrap up the show today, um, I've been guilty of this lately, and I'm not apologizing, but I'm going to tell you, when I see something really beautiful, like uh, yesterday, I just it, we got our first real significant snowfall of the year, and so everything had a nice little blanket of four or five inches of snow, and there was the, the most incredible scene at sunset with fog creeping in and the fresh snow and the sun going down. And I couldn't help myself. I'm, I'm one of these people who now compulsively takes pictures and shares them on social media. And, you know, the funny thing is I, I try to think of a reason for it. I try to justify, well, I better put something in the description here that explains why I would take valuable time to snap a picture and, you know, then share it with people. And, and it could be that maybe this is, I, maybe I'm just looking for approval. I don't know. <laughs> maybe Maybe that's why I do it. But the rationalization that I have in my own mind is there's so little focus on things of beauty right now. 
that I want to do my part to, to point it out where possible. And I don't want to do it in a, you know, heavy-handed fashion, like grabbing your head. Look, look at that sunset. It's so magnificent. So if uh, if you follow me on social media, if you see, well, gee, he posts a lot of these uh, sunset, sunrise, landscape kind of pictures. It's it's only because I've seen something that stirred my appreciation for some of the incredible beauty around us. By the way, I love it when other people do this as well. Partially because, you know, it shows, see, I'm not the only one. <laughs> but also, I'm just grateful that there are people who are able to focus on the good. I talk about some heavy topics on this program. And sometimes it's, it's I need a break. I need, you know, what Bloom County used to call a dandelion break. Just something to remind me that there are still plenty of examples of beauty around here. And it's not beauty that's only reserved for the rich and the powerful and the well-connected. It's something that any one of us can enjoy simply by opening our eyes. So if uh, if you see that, uh, please understand. I'm not trying to force my point of view on you, but if it's something that uh, that brings a bit of joy, chances are pretty good I'm going to share it. Not because I know better than you, but simply because... I'd like to put it out there for your consideration. Maybe you'll find something worthwhile in it as well. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.